Hello everyone, welcome to episode 56 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And for today's case, we are heading to Pennsylvania in the US. This episode starts on May 12th, 2007 in Lancaster, a city in South Pennsylvania. Within Lancaster, there is a town called Mannheim Township. Mannheim Township is well known for being the hub for Pennsylvania's Amish community. It was always a safe place where people felt so secure that they'd often leave their doors unlocked at night time. Crime levels were low to non-existent in 2007 when this case started, and that is why the police were shocked to receive a phone call on May 12th at 2.30 in the morning with reports of a struggle and screaming coming from a home on Peach Lane. The home belonged to the Haynes family. 50-year-old Thomas Haynes and 47-year-old Lisa Haynes had been married for decades, and together they had two children. Maggie was 20 years old and she was studying at Bucknell University, about 100 miles north from their home, and their son Kevin was just 16 years old. Kevin was a very smart boy and he excelled at school. School kids, however, as we well know, are not always the kindest of people, and Kevin only had a handful of close friends as he was bullied a bit. This didn't bother him, however, as he had a really close relationship with his sister and his parents. The four members of the Haynes family often did everything together. They enjoyed eating meals together and then sitting down in an evening to watch a film. Maggie had gone off to university, but when she was home, Kevin loved to spend time with her. On the day of 11th of May 2007, Maggie had come home from university to spend a few weeks with her family. Kevin and Maggie went out to the shops and bought their mother a Mother's Day card for the holiday that weekend. That evening, the family ate dinner together and then they settled down to watch a film. When the film ended, Kevin and his mother went to sleep, but Maggie and her father stayed up to watch a bit of sports on the TV. At some point a bit later, they too retired to bed. Shortly after 2am, Maggie woke to sounds of a fight happening somewhere in her house. She said that she could hear screaming and she ran into the hallway. She said she was instantly hit with the smell of blood. She ran into her parents' room and saw her father lying in bed, covered in blood. Her mother was sat up on the edge of the bed. Maggie froze, unable to process what she was seeing. Her mother turned to her, hunched over, clutching her bleeding stomach, and stared at Maggie. She whispered in a slow, low voice, Go, get help. Maggie snapped out of her shock and ran back into the hallway. There, she saw her brother laying near the top of the stairs, completely covered in blood and not moving. She didn't see anyone else in the house as she ran down the stairs and out of the unlocked front door. Oh my god, but we don't know if there's someone is in the house. Mm -hmm. So Maggie ran across the street to her neighbour's house and she banged on the door. Her neighbour answered the door and immediately called 911. The next bit of information is reported in several contrasting ways. In interviews, the detectives themselves state that they arrived at the home within five minutes of the 911 call. However, other articles state that there was a miscommunication between the police department and the 911 responder, and this led to a large delay before the police arrived at the house. The police said they'd arrived just five minutes after the 911 call, and that inside the Haynes family home, they discovered a violent and gruesome scene. 16-year-old Kevin was lying dead in the hallway near the stairs. He was covered in blood and it was clear that he had sustained several stab wounds. In their bedroom, Tom and Lisa Haynes were also deceased. 
Tom was laying in bed as if he had been stabbed whilst he was asleep. Lisa was laying on the floor just away from the bed. The officers surmised that Lisa had been alive after being stabbed and she had crawled to get away. When the perpetrator had realised that she was still alive, he or she had come back and stabbed Lisa again. Can that be possible though? Because we know that Maggie went into the room, spoke to her mum and then left the house without being attacked. Exactly. Yes, we'll get on to that. (laughs) Oh, okay. So it was later confirmed by the medical examiner um, who noted that Lisa had survived the initial stab wounds and that the killer had come back and slashed Lisa's throat and this had been the wound that had killed her. The ME also revealed something very disturbing. Whilst Tom and Lisa had sustained stab wounds, theirs had been very minimal compared to their 16-year-old sons. Kevin had sustained over 50 stab wounds and these were inflicted on his back, his arms and his face. There was blood up the walls in the hallway and the forensics team confirmed that the patterns were an indication that Kevin had fought back. The police were at a complete loss. A homicide in Mannheim Township was rare, but a triple homicide of three members of the same family was unheard of. First and foremost, the police turned their attention to Maggie, the only surviving member of the family. They questioned why she was the only one to survive and why the killer hadn't come to her room or tried to attack her. According to Maggie, she hadn't seen anyone in the house when she'd run out to get help. As you just mentioned, Sal, this didn't really add up. The killer must have still been in the house at the time that she ran, because Maggie had told the police that her mother had been alive when she'd gone into the bedroom, and that it had been her mother who had told her to run and get help. As we know, the killer then came back and slashed Lisa's throat, so they must have been in the house when Maggie had run out. This made the police very suspicious. Adding to this, they found traces of blood in the main bathroom sink. This indicated to them that the killer had washed their hands or possibly the bloody knife before leaving the home. With regards to the police's timeline, this would mean that the killer would have had to be hiding somewhere in order for Maggie not to see them. Then, when Maggie had left to get help, the killer would have had to go back into the master bedroom and kill Lisa... They'd then have gone into the bathroom and washed their hands on the knife and then they'd left the property without anyone seeing. All of that, according to the police's timeline, would have had to have happened within five minutes because the police were called at 2.24am and by 2.30am they said that they'd arrived at the home. This didn't give the killer a lot of time and more than that, it didn't seem to make sense. If the killer had seen Maggie leaving the house to get help, why had they not chased and killed Maggie too? Why had she been spared? There was nothing missing from the home, and so the police were working on the theory that this was a planned murder and not a robbery gone wrong or anything like that. This was a targeted homicide. The question was why. Maggie became the focus of the police's investigation. The police felt that Maggie was too calm. Her whole family had just been murdered, and yet she was showing very little emotion. As we know, people display shock and grief in different ways, and so her perceived calm attitude was really not indicative of anything, but the police had to start their investigation somewhere. This does remind me of Luther, though. What part of Luther? Oh, what, the very first the very first season? Yeah, with um, the girl. Yeah, Alice. Yeah. Yeah. So the police brought Maggie in for an interview and asked her to write a statement of the events that had unfolded that night. Maggie wrote about the day she had spent with her brother, 
and then the dinner that she had had with her family. She wrote that her mother and brother had gone to bed earlier and that she had stayed up with her dad. She wrote that she was awoken to the sound of screaming and that she went into her parents' room where her dad was already dead. She said her mum had told her to go and get help. And then she wrote, quote, and you know the rest, end quote. The police thought this was odd and suspicious behaviour. They found the phrase, and you know the rest, to be chilling, and they couldn't understand why she wasn't trying to assist them more with their investigation. However, despite the eerie feeling the police had, the forensic evidence did not support the theory that Maggie had murdered her whole family. The police had found a cap in the back garden. The cap had a strip of tape over the logo, and on that bit of tape there were a few strands of hair and a bit of blood. When this was put through the police database, it did not match to any convicted criminals or DNA they had on file, and it didn't match Maggie's DNA either. In addition, there had also been bloody footprints inside the house, and these were determined to be from a size 13 shoe. More specifically, the pattern on the print was from a male's hush puppy trainer. There was also only one set of bloody footprints, so the officers believed that their killer had been working alone and had been male. The police started looking into the Haynes family background to attempt to determine why the family had been targeted. They searched for any signs of debt or any hint of an affair, but Lisa and Tom's lives were squeaky clean. They were a normal, happy family, and there appeared to be no bad blood between them and anyone else. Lisa taught preschool at the local church, and Tom was a manager at an industrial supplies company. All accounts from those who knew him stated that Tom was a positive person. However, some colleagues did note that he had recently fallen out with someone at work. There was a member of Tom's team who hadn't been pulling his weight properly, and Tom had had to give him quite a public dressing down in front of the other members of his team. The man had reacted to this very aggressively in the office and then had stormed out the building. This had occurred just a week or so before the murders had been committed. The police looked into this individual and realised just a day after the murders had occurred that the man had disappeared and had left Lancaster. This felt like a good lead and the police began to feel like they might be getting somewhere with their investigation. They were facing a lot of public pressure and the communities in Lancaster were nervous that there was a faceless killer on the loose. A place where people had slept with their doors unlocked for years had become a community where people turned inwards and were shutting out the rest of the town. The police looked into the man that Tom Haynes had worked with, but unfortunately this lead was quickly dismissed. The man had travelled out of state to visit his family, and, despite previously thinking that he'd left Lancaster the day after the murders, receipts proved that he had actually travelled out of state the day before the murders, and he had a rock-solid alibi. And it's quite a leap, isn't it, to fall out with your colleague and then them to murder your entire family, bar one. Yes, it is a leap. But then I think also they were just so desperate for like some some kind yeah. of lead because they just had nothing. They had no idea who could do this. Um, and because crime was just crime just didn't happen at all in this town. Um, it just I think the, the obviously the pressure they were facing from the public was just even greater than it than it probably normally would be. Mm. So next, the police decided to look into Kevin to see if there were any signs that he had been involved with possibly dangerous people. Their searches into Kevin were over almost as soon as they'd started. Kevin was a high-achieving high school student. 
He had a small group of friends and his two best friends who he spent most of his time with. His two best friends were called Ben Opp and Alec Crider. Ben and Alec were normal boys and they were devastated and terrified that their friend had been murdered in such a violent way. The only option was to look back to Maggie Haynes and her life at university. The police went to campus and spoke to Maggie's teachers and other pupils. They were hoping to find someone who might have some sort of motive for wanting Maggie's family dead. Their searches, again, revealed nothing. The police were now without any suspect and they had no possible motive. They began to float the idea that perhaps this was a homicidal stranger, perhaps a serial killer who had been passing through Lancaster and had taken advantage of the neighbourhood that kept its doors unlocked. They started looking into other break-ins that had ended with families being stabbed to death across America. They found six crimes with the same MO. Four of these had been in the state of New York, one had happened in Florida, and the other had occurred in California. In all six cases, a knife had been used and there had been multiple victims who had been killed inside the family home. The police were putting a plan into place to connect with the officers who had worked on those homicides to ascertain if they were all unsolved and if they had any clue as to who the killer in those cases was. If those crime scenes had DNA left at them, perhaps they could compare this to the DNA they'd found on the cap at the Haynes' home. Then, the police got a break in the case. In North Carolina, a car was pulled over as part of a routine traffic stop the car had a Pennsylvania license plate, and inside the car were two men who were carrying a knife and marijuana. The two men were arrested for possession of the drugs, and during their booking, the arresting officer noted that one of the men had scratches and cuts on his hand. The men were taken for questioning. The fact that they had come from Pennsylvania and that they had a knife on them was suspicious. One of the men told the arresting officer that he and his friend had just got away with a murder in Pennsylvania. What? He told the officer that? The person told the officer? Mm-hmm. So basically Amazing. he said that they'd broken into someone's house and that they then killed someone in that home. Why? <sighs> well. Why is he telling them that? Couldn't tell you because the officers there um, in North Carolina alerted the Mannheim Township Police Department and they asked uh, the North Carolina officers to take DNA samples from the men. Unfortunately, these samples were not a match to the DNA found at the Haynes' home. Oh. In addition, the shoe print that had been found at the crime scene indicated that there was only one perpetrator and this print did not match the size of either of the men's feet. Adding to this, both men had alibis for the night the Haynes family were murdered and when they were pushed for more details, it turned out that they had made the whole story up. They hadn't murdered anyone and the cut marks on one of the men's hands had been caused at his place of work, as was confirmed by his manager. It had been a sheer coincidence that there was an unsolved murder in Pennsylvania and that these men had lied about committing a murder there. This was unfortunately not the only false hope in this case. The officers had set up a tip line that had been inundated with calls, most of them hoaxes. However, one call from a probation officer stuck out to them. The probation officer had called the tip line regarding a conversation he'd had with one of the juvenile offenders that he worked with, a young man named Angelo. Angelo had told the probation worker that someone he knew had entered the Haynes family home and murdered the family as part of a gang initiation. This man was reportedly called Hector 
and he had allegedly told Angelo that he had, quote-unquote, taken care of the family. This lead seemed fairly promising because the offender had information that the public didn't know about. Angelo told the probation worker that Hector had told him that he'd gone into the house, he'd killed the dad, and then he'd killed the mum. He'd then walked into the bedroom down the hall and opened some of the drawers in there looking for something to steal, and that's when he heard a noise behind him and he'd realised that there was a boy in the room. He said that he'd then stabbed the boy in the throat. This narrative somewhat fit the events that had unfolded in the Haynes family home. Kevin's drawers had been found open, and this was information that the public didn't know. Angelo had told his probation officer that Hector had even shown them the bloodstained knife. Again, this fit the narrative as the murder weapon had not been found at the crime scene and it was still missing. The information about the fact that the murder weapon was missing had also not been released to the public. The police wanted to question Hector, but they didn't want to spook him, and they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him. They asked Angelo to speak to his friend whilst wearing a wire and try and get him to confess to the crime again. Angelo wore a wire, and for four days he met up with Hector and tried to probe him into confessing. He said things like, Tell me about that family you took care of. To which Hector always replied confused and said he didn't know what Angelo was talking about. He'd ask things like, what about that house you broke into on Peach Lane? To which Hector again responded sounding really confused. After four days of listening to the aimless conversations between Hector and Angelo, the police called it quits. It was clear to them that Angelo had made the whole thing up to try and get an early release from juvenile detention. This brought with it yet another blow in this case, and the investigators were at their wits' end. Most of the detectives were working 20-hour days to try and get a break in the case, and each time they got one, it turned out to be a hoax and a waste of police time. The worst thing about this case was that really they had no suspects at all. They had no motive, they barely had any evidence. Short of a confession from the killer, it seemed unlikely that they'd be able to find the individual who did this. They really believed that it had been a random attack from a stranger, but the one thing that kept nagging at the back of the team's mind was that the attack on Kevin had been so much more brutal and violent than the attack on his parents. It just seemed so much more personal. At around midnight on June 7th, Detective Lee, one of the officers who had been working on the Haynes family murder case, received a phone call from another member of the police department. The call was in relation to a teenager who was threatening suicide. Detective Lee asked why the call had been transferred to him, and the officer said that it was because it might be related to his murder investigation. The teenager was Kevin's best friend, Alec Crider. Oh. Detective Lee immediately left his house and drove to where Alec was, the officer had told him that Alec had been on the phone to his girlfriend, a girl called Caroline, and Alec had been crying down the phone to Caroline, stating that he had a loaded pistol and that he was going to kill himself. Caroline left her home to visit Alec and she wrote her aunt a note explaining what had happened. When her aunt had read the note, she had been the one to call the police. Detective Lee was gravely concerned that he might be too late, as some hours had passed since Alec had called Caroline threatening harm. Detective Lee drove to Alec's home with so many thoughts rushing through his mind. 
He couldn't believe that this case was threatening to take another life. He could understand that Alec was in a huge amount of pain at losing his best friend to such a violent crime. When Detective Lee reached Alec Crider's home, he was relieved to find Alec unharmed. He spoke to him and the boy told him that he was so sick of all the evil people in the world. He said that the world's a terrible place and he broke down completely and sobbed about the loss of his best friend. Detective Lee spoke to Alec's parents and suggested that he be taken to a hospital for a psychological evaluation. Alec spent the next few weeks in a secure hospital, undertaking therapy sessions and evaluations. During his time in hospital, Alec continued to write letters to his girlfriend, Caroline. These letters were very emotive and very intense, and they were taking a toll on Caroline's mental health. It got to the point where Caroline asked Alec's parents to tell him to stop sending her the letters because they were really affecting her. She wanted to end their relationship. Again, this next bit of information is reported in two conflicting ways. On the one hand, the detectives in interviews and the Unusual Suspects documentary stated that Alec's parents went to the hospital to speak to Alec and had told him that his relationship with Caroline was over. This conversation took place during one of his counselling sessions with his counsellor present. With a deadpan expression on his face, Alec did not react to what his parents had said about his relationship with Caroline and instead just asked his parents to leave the room. Once they left the room, Alec turned to his counsellor and told her that he had killed the Haynes family. She immediately brought the Criders back into the room and asked Alec to tell his parents what he had just told her. Alec told his parents that he had murdered the Haynes family and that he'd stabbed his best friend, Kevin, to death. His parents didn't believe him. They phoned Detective Lee and he came and spoke to Alec. He didn't believe Alec either. The other way that this is reported is that Alec admitted to his father in private that he had committed the murders and that his father had waited two days and then had reported it to the police. This version of events is reported on a lot more, and it seems that maybe it did occur in this way. But either way, at some point, Detective Lee was informed that Alec had confessed to the murders. Detective Lee thought that Alec was just saying that he'd killed the family because he was trying to get back at his parents for stopping his relationship with Caroline. There was no way that this 16-year-old boy had killed his best friend and his family and had managed to evade capture for weeks. And for them not to know, I guess, because... Um, obviously we know that the mother had been alive and possibly maybe seen who had done it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you'd have thought if she had, she might have passed that information like on to Maggie. Mm, that's true. That is true. The thing was, chillingly, the things Alec told Detective Lee began to fit. His account was so incredibly accurate Alec said that he had dressed in black and worn a cap. He said that on the cap he had put tape over the logo to hide it. He went to the Haynes home with a torch and a hunting knife and he entered the house through the garage door that he knew was always unlocked. He went upstairs and stabbed Tom Haynes in his sleep. He said that Tom didn't wake up and he didn't move. This fit accurately with the position that Tom's body was found in as if he had been killed in his sleep. After this... He said that Lisa woke up and he stabbed her a few times. He said that he thought he had killed her. Alec told the detectives that once he had left the master bedroom, 
he had gone down the hallway to Kevin's room and that Kevin was up, presumably having woken to the sounds of his mum screaming. He said that Kevin fought back hard and that Kevin tried to run away. This was how they'd ended up in the hallway. He said that he didn't hear Maggie wake up and go into her parents' bedroom. He'd had no idea that Maggie was in the house and that she'd come back from uni. He said that if he had known, he'd have killed her too. Oh, so that makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? I was thinking that there was a special reason, but I guess in these cases, you kind of sometimes just rule out the most obvious answer, which is this, like, here, that he just didn't know she was there. Exactly, yeah. It's just, it, it didn't cross my mind either that, like, somehow he just missed her. But it does really seem that way and that she missed him when she ran down the stairs. And we don't know, but presumably at that point, maybe he was washing his hands and then he heard Lisa was awake because obviously there was a period of time where both of them crossed, would have crossed each other on the hallway if Mm. Alec must have been in a different room then and he can't have been in, in the parents' room because that's where Maggie had come from. How frightening that she was that close to him. I know, honestly, so terrifying. So, yeah, so after he'd killed Kevin, he'd heard noises coming from the master bedroom and he'd gone back in there to find Lisa still alive, so he'd slashed her once in the throat. Again, this account matched with what the ME had said about the wounds Lisa had sustained. After this, Alex said that he left the bedroom and went into the main bathroom to wash the knife. The detectives were sick to their stomachs with how accurate Alex's account was and they really didn't want to believe that this 16-year-old had committed this horrible crime. They searched the Crider's home, and they found the bloodstained knife, along with a pair of black gloves that were also covered in blood. The blood on the knife and the gloves matched the Haynes family. The forensic team also tested the hair on the cap that had been found in the garden, and this matched Alec's DNA. In addition... The shoes that Alec was wearing during his interview with the police were size 13 hush puppy trainers, and when the grooves on the sole were tested, traces of blood matching Lisa, Tom and Kevin were found. He didn't even get rid of them? No, he didn't get rid of them, and there was literally no doubt that Alec had murdered his best friend and his parents. How tragic. With regards to the evidence, I found this so interesting because it seems so odd that he'd go through go to the lengths of like covering the logo on the cap in case someone might have seen it and things like that but then leaving the crime scene like without the cap obviously it's, it sounds like it fell off in the garden when he was trying to escape but it seems odd to me that he wouldn't go back and get it and also to just be so careless with putting his footprints all around the house it's almost like I don't know like maybe he was testing it to see if he was going to get caught do you know what I mean it just seems so weird to go to some some extreme lengths to then leave you know a hat that has DNA on it and these bloody footprints I just think for me like tragic this is a work of the, a child isn't it I mean it's probably he him thinking he was doing a good job at like concealing his identity etc but actually like you know he's not a criminal mastermind he's not a genius he's just a person doing an awful thing and it probably didn't even cross his mind that a bloody footprint could put him away as much as a strand of hair do you know what I mean it was just it seems to me like a very half thought out plan mm-hmm. yeah okay that makes sense I hadn't thought of it like that but yeah that's so true it's yes yeah, a 16 year old kid doing this so yeah possibly it was just an error just a mistake and it wasn't as callous as yeah trying to test the police or whatever 
So the main question in this case was why, and that unfortunately is not a question that I or anyone has the answer to. Along with the knife and the gloves, the search of Alec's home revealed a journal where Alec had written pages and pages of deeply disturbing thoughts. He wrote, quote, Never did I believe that killing a man is wrong. No, no, killing out of cold blood is wrong, but that is all. I often wondered, if I set out to destroy the world, would God stop me? He also wrote, Ever since I was young, I was defiant of rules and of their consequences, which of course laid the foundation for my current anger, depression and violent nature, end quote. Then, on May 12th, the day of the murders, he wrote that today was the day that Alexander was born. He had declared himself a new person after the murders. He had declared himself a serial killer. The rest of his entries were much of the same, a lot of talk about killing and killing people and killing himself. On June 16th, he was arrested and charged with three counts of first-degree murder and one count of burglary, but his parents requested that he receive a psychological evaluation that they hoped would allow him to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. He sounds quite disturbed to me at this point. Mm-hmm. So... After a long evaluation, it was actually deemed that Alec was of sound mind and that he was not suffering from any form of insanity. He was deemed to be a narcissist, a serial killer in the making, but definitely of sound mind. In the weeks following the murders, he had acted exactly as everyone else had. He had been cold and calculating, and it was clear that he knew exactly what he had done and probably would have done it again. In the end, Alec Crider pleaded guilty to all three murders and he was sentenced to life imprisonment with no possibility of parole. At 16 years old, he was going to prison for life and there was no chance that he would be released. The Crider family had requested a more lenient sentence on account of his very young age, but the judge did not grant any leniency. Maggie Haynes had videoed a very powerful victim impact statement in which she described how her life had been destroyed by Alec, how she wished every day that she had been able to save her brother, and how, as a big sister, all she wished for was that she was dead and that her little brother was still alive. She said, quote, My biggest concern should have been what grades I was getting on my college finals, not what caskets to bury my parents in. The raw emotion she displayed has such a huge impact on the judge that he said that he agreed with everything Maggie had said, including the fact that it was very likely that Alec would stop at nothing to kill again. Adding to this, Alec had shown no remorse and he had not given any motive or explanation for why he did what he did, and therefore the judge gave him no leniency. In 2012, the US Supreme Court found that mandatory life sentences without parole for juveniles was unconstitutional, and in 2016, this ruling was made retroactive, which meant that it did apply to full life terms given to juveniles in the past. This meant that Alec Crider was eligible for a new sentence, one that would give him the opportunity to apply for parole. This brought Maggie and the rest of their extended family an overwhelming amount of grief. They felt that they had been let down by the justice system. They had never considered that there might have been a change to the law that would mean that he could one day walk free. However, on January 20th, 2017, whilst his case was being re-evaluated by the board, Alec Crider hung himself in prison and killed himself. 
<gasps> he had served just less than 10 years in prison when he died. Oh my God. His father released a statement online about his son's death and said, quote, Alec committed a horrible crime and took so much away from an innocent family and that certainly is a part of who Alec was and part of his story. Alec desperately wanted his life to be different. He had hopes and dreams for his life and future and they were lost to the darkness and where it led him. He was hurting and unable to conquer the inexplicable darkness that was a constant part of his every day. He didn't understand or know why he felt the way he did and why, no matter what he did, no matter how much he wanted to, no matter how hard he tried, he wasn't able to overcome the darkness and anger. Alec wanted with all of his being for his life to be different and to be free of the torment he endured and had lived with for so long. End quote. I find that a really powerful statement. And I would, it sounds to me like fucking Hellas has done some soul searching to try and find like peace with who his son was. Absolutely. So he has since then, um, Alec's father, he's written a book called Refuse to Drown. And like, to be completely honest, I haven't read the entire thing, but I did find it interesting how he explained in the book, basically that one of the things he said was that his son had confided in him um, about committing the murders and that after that, he'd expected him to like save him and to like not go to the police about it. And he expected him to be his confidant and and as a father, he had to battle with this, you know, should I save my son or should I do the right thing? And I agree with you. It does seem like he's done so much soul searching to try and understand why he made the decision basically to go to the police, which ultimately was the right thing. And that's why I found it quite confusing with like the detective saying that um, Alec admitted uh, had admitted to it in a counselling session because the way that um tim cried who's alex's father the way that he describes it it is that his son had admitted to him two days before and i don't know if maybe both things happened maybe he admitted it two days before to his father and then he'd gone and admitted it again in this counseling session but either way obviously tim did do the right thing about going to the police but it's just so powerful because i mean i would recommend it if anyone's interested in hearing how a perpetrator's you know family has you know has to come to deal with the crimes of their loved one because it's really it was yeah quite an emotional read really and really inspiring yeah i completely completely agree i mean i think there's there's like a grief and a loss there for the family of perpetrators sometimes as well um i think it's really heartbreaking for everyone in this case frankly that he took his own life and i know that you know systems are there and stuff to try and prevent that happening but I think like ultimately it, like it's not an eye for an eye do you know what I mean it doesn't provide any one peace of mind when that's the ending of a case like ultimately for Maggie she probably feels that his time to like serve justice uh was robbed um and I'm sure that maybe I don't know maybe for her it felt a easier way for things to be than the possibility that like he could get parole I mean I don't mm -hmm. think he ever probably would have based on like what you said it doesn't sound like he was at any point someone who was like that capable of like reform um but that's still very you know there's still a system there to deal with that and I think that suicide isn't is not a happy ending for anyone basically is it no, it isn't at all. It isn't at all. It's just a really, I found it a really interesting case to research because 
I guess from my perspective, I find it really difficult that there's no motive. And I, oh, you know, we've spoken about it before. Like sometimes it just is easier to process really, truly horrible cases like this when you can kind of put a reason to why they did it or why they felt Mm, they wanted to do it or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like there's just no, he never revealed it. And he obviously had some kind of reason. And why them as well? Like, obviously we get the sense that like he was having these thoughts that were really pervasive and kind of enough to kind of convince him into committing horrible acts beyond just thinking about them but yeah like why his best friend's family and stuff I mean that's why I was pretty surprised that he would not have anything picked up at um in like a psychological assessment because it just seems bizarre that he would do it to one of what sounds like his very few friends Yeah, and I found that quite difficult. And I tried to look into that to see if there was any reason for why he had chosen his best friend's family. And basically what it comes down to, I think, is what everyone kind of is just surmising about the situation is that it was close to the Haynes family home was close to where he lived. He knew that how to get there, like what it was walking distance. He knew exactly. He knew that it was unlocked. He knew the layout of the home. He knew the three people or he thought that three people were going to be there. It was, I guess, simple. And if you, if he was having these obsessive thoughts about killing someone and he just wanted to give it a go, then really they, they were a good target for him because he knew the layout of the home and everything. And there was very little room for error, but it's just so chilling. It's just so awful. And so they were a group of three. So it was Kevin, Alec, and then their other friend, Ben. And Ben, since like since this case has just been, obviously he's lost his two best friends um, and one at the hand of the other. And he just can't believe it. And he really didn't believe that it was Alec either. Like there just seemed to be no kind of hint that he was having these really awful, yeah, very dangerous thoughts. Yeah. So yeah, a really, a really different case to research um and hopefully one that you guys haven't heard of before um it wasn't one that i'd heard of um and it was quite tricky to research there's not a lot of information out there but if you are interested in reading tim crider's book um about how he's processed and and tried to come to grips really with um his son killing three people in such a brutal way then that book's called refuse to drown um and it is really well written i thought it's quite interesting yeah i think i'll definitely read that very sad so that is all for today thank you everyone for listening to today's episode as always please follow us on social media at infraction.thepod and if you'd like to support the show and get extra content then you can find us on patreon by searching infraction thank you very much and we'll see you soon bye bye